also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Bottleman, Bottleman, Bottleman. It is me, Riley, coming at you from London, joined as ever uh, by Dan in Montreal. What's up? Uh, <laughs> what's up is uh, interest in democracy as Canadian after Canadian heads to celebrate our uh, nation's glorious democratic traditions at the polls. Uh, that's right. Election fever has gripped Canada and the symptoms are... That very little has changed. Yes. Um, the real winner of tonight's election or last night's election was Liberal Democracy, capital L, capital D. Uh, comedy uh, and collegiality and uh, a curtsy in the direction of Sussex Drive. Uh, that's right. Joining us, however, uh, are our two very special guests. It is uh, Garth Mullins and Sam Fenn from the Crackdown podcast. And you guys are out in, tour in BC way. Yeah, hey, nice to be here. Yeah, out in the, the big smoke, uh, Vancouver. Thank it you for is. having us. What a riveting time it's been in Canada, you know? I know, ups, downs, oops, goofs, uh, <laughs> thrills, chills, and spills. Uh, what I found most distinctive about this election was how um, over the course of it, you know, we can sort of conclude that $610 million, not a, not a penny wasted uh, having this... <laughs> This uh, vanity project of an election, um, not a penny wasted, very few seats changing hands, or I guess seats changing asses. Um, and it seems like no party scored any political points on any other party. It was just own goals from all of them. I thought the yeah. semen retention guy had, you know, some interesting things to say, you know, and uh, the conversation was sort of enriched. By those, like his his concepts, but besides for that, yeah, I don't know if anything else happened. Yeah, yeah just, the, the the real story last night uh, seemed to be uh, people collecting PPC uh, candidates like like fucking Pokemon cards, like just just like uh, absolute mutant after mutant, yeah, uh, being bandied around the internet. Brock we know Crocker, <laughs> no. for one. Brock that's Crocker. A, yeah, no, that's real. That's uh, not a real man. Yeah, it's <laughs> a real man. I mean, they, they are like uh, this nasty white supremacist mutation, and everybody says, oh, it's American politics coming to Canada, but like we invent this shit. We're net exporters of, um, you know, uh, far right propagandists and organizers and all that stuff. But they seem to be the only party talking about the actual pandemic in a real way. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of the rest of the parties were running the election as if everything wasn't on fire and broken and screaming. Mm -hmm. You know, it was this calm, you know, it's it's like you would not have known this was an election happening in 2021. It could have been from sometime in the late 20th century. It just was so, so bland. You know, it just, it just didn't reflect at all the giant clusterfuck that was going on right outside of everybody's uh, riding office. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think the... This goes back to like the, the the desperation among the sort of major Canadian parties. Just be like, no, we we have our things we like to talk about. We're just going to talk about them. And then uh, the our, our sort of uh, storied class of opinion columnists were like, well, we have the column we write, and we're just going to keep writing it. And it was just it was a situation where 
every single thing about the process was just absolutely not up to any of the challenges that have been set uh, by you know uh, material circumstances. You could say it was a catastrophic failure in every respect, including to produce some kind of discernible outcome of yes. what Canadian politics is and means now, other than just sort of a shrug of the shoulders, more of the same, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah. It's, it's like, um, when you have, uh, all these parties that basically have one idea, like we got to support somehow support liberal capitalism. And then you have this guy, an old cabinet minister from the Harper era, who was noted for having left secret documents at his biker girlfriend's house. <laughs> And he shows up a couple of years ago with a brand new idea or idea new to a lot of Canadians. Goddamn the cheese marketing board or whatever. Uh, and then he, he's just he's just looking for an audience. And there is one. Yeah. <laughs> like, of course, there is one because nobody else has any fucking ideas that resonate with people. Absolutely. So this guy is like uh, obviously like repulsive. Right. But um, for some reason, because everybody else is offering bullshit, like really weak bullshit. People, you know, like not a lot of people, but still a scary amount of people turned towards the far right uh, and cocked an ear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the the pandemic, like you were saying, Garth, like like the fact that the PPC were the only party to really for, you know, for better, or for worse, put the pandemic at the front of their platform uh, with a lot of their candidates. I think that that resonated with a lot of people who would have been totally apolitical otherwise. And then. You know, they get sort of absorbed into this larger project of anti-politics, basically. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because the, the way they, conf they confront the pandemic, but they confront it by like, you know, saying that by they confront it with the severity and the tone that the seriousness of the situation deserved, but with a completely unserious sets of things to do about it. You know, they, they front you're and saying, centered it on you're the saying basis breathing that, like, into your balls is uh, unserious. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will. I, no, I will never say that. Number one. Uh, but uh, we given that this was perhaps the single most unimportant election of Canadian history. Um, uh, and, and that's quite a depending on how you conceive of it, high or low bar to clear. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want to move on to sort of something that is uh, actually uh, of, of importance, something that's actually affecting people's lives, uh, something other than just the uh, $610 million, uh, you know, consultant and uh, pollster and columnist bonanza that was uh, the lying, fake, uh, sloppy, sleepy election of 2021. I would like to talk a little bit about uh, Vancouver, about the history of how the town became like it is, and the politics of Canada's, uh, I don't want to call it failed drug war, because I think it's probably achieving many of its goals, which is uh, to uh, you know, basically um, criminalize, harass, and um, uh, sort of otherwise just a, a hassle, uh, sort of, you know, uh, people, a lot of people in Vancouver. Um, and this is sort of your guys's like this is what uh, crackdown's all about, right? It's your beat. This is your thing. Yeah, that's like all we do, basically. Mm -hmm. It's it's um, it's our beat, and also for myself and the editorial board, it's our lives. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so, do you want to go into a little more sort of just before we sort of start talking about the history and politics of it, just about crackdown and how it started and 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 what it does? 
yeah, this, it started from activism. Um, you know, myself and a group of uh, drug user activists around the Vancouver area network of drug users were, you know, fighting various campaigns against prohibition and criminalization and the weird outcomes that come with it. And um, we met this researcher, Dr. Ryan McNeil, who was coming to to Vandu to conduct sort of community-led research. You know, he would talk about what are the issues that people are facing and what are you seeing and what things do you want to find out? And I never met somebody from um, academia who works like that, you know, who takes direction from the people who are affected. Usually people do research on marginalized people like uh, like guinea pigs, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, he, he was looking at um, some issues that were affecting us. We were going to meetings to try and pressure different um, mid-level government officials and get nowhere. And so we started asking Ryan if he would come and help present the evidence and kind of, you know, give it the um, veneer of respectability that academia uh, sometimes accords. And uh, so he did He did start coming and we kind of were doing this dog and pony show and me and him were walking out of one meeting with, I think it was Health Canada. And um, <clears throat> I said, fuck, we're not really convincing anybody, you know, like these guys aren't changing their minds. So this is pretty useless for meetings, but m- maybe it would make good radio. And uh, Ryan says, oh, yeah, I I think we could do that. And he actually says we should make a podcast. And I think I know, you know, how we could get some support for that. Mm. Uh, And so uh, we started meeting and, and, um, you know, I said, this is not something I could produce by myself. Like I, you know, I like a lot of us, I'd learned um, mixing and tech by just being in crappy bands. Right. And if you're in a (laughs) shitty band, you have to sometimes do your own sound and fix your monitors and repair your own amp. Fuck, I repaired my guitar amp last night. My like <laughs> old tube powered Marshall 112, like election night was so boring. I was like, I may as well fix this. One, one, so, like, one thing take, I picked up uh, in in that same world, Garth, because we're from, you know, we're from the same spot, kind of grew up, came yeah. up around the same time, is that uh, you cannot replace a fuse with a piece of wadded up tinfoil. Like it'll work. <laughs> Once. <laughs> Once. Yeah. <laughs> so does does Wolf Parade have someone to replace the fuses or do you guys do that yourself? Uh we we used to just do it ourselves and uh we had uh Todd Graham, uh also Vancouver native, doing um doing tech work for us until uh my amplifier blew up on stage in Eugene, Oregon, like literally caught on fire. And then and then wow. and then we started hiring like uh you know, crew later on in our career. So I'm, I'm really glad that there's that world. The existence of that world keeps me going, you know, that's, yeah. that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> you guys were the last live show I saw before the pandemic. Oh, I mean, man. I've seen something <laughs> since, but that was the, and it was great by the way. I, I it was a fantastic evening. Thank you. Uh, what in the fuck were we talking about? Oh yeah. Um, so you learn these skills and uh, they eventually kind of, you know, you record your band, you l- learn to mix. And that transferred for me into radio, you know, working at college radio, sometimes to play bands that you like and to play your own band. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that transferred into radio documentary. And, and I said to uh, Ryan McNeil, I, c- I can't do that by myself. Uh, and I bumped into Sam uh, just after um, him and his his company had gotten a little recognition for a documentary on uh, the heroin clinic here in Vancouver, across town, where a small group of people get prescribed mm-hmm. uh, heroin, like prescription heroin. And I said, hey, would you come and help us uh, figure this out? And we have, me and Sam have talked to each other pretty much every day since then. 
Amazing. Yeah, it was supposed to be like a little thing off the side of my desk or whatever. Now it's it's like uh, my whole job and my entire social circle basically <laughs> is uh, the people who make the show. Um, but it's cool. I like it. And, I, and you know, like every now and then we have like a conversation, like how much longer can you just make a show about the war on drugs? Like, will you have said everything you need to say about it after a while? And I sort of like came into it with that suspicion. But I think... Um, I don't know, man. It's like the 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 world of ideas, like the historical stuff that that we haven't even touched yet, uh, is is uh, fucking fascinating. There's so many little um, side paths I want to go down. So this is like my whole thing now. Basically. So yeah. I think what, with with this sort of understanding, I think it's important to understand really that um, that sort of this is uh, this is this is not sort of a, a project that is undertaken at a distance. From what's going on, really, it's uh, it's not it's not as so many um sort of progressive projects in Canada are a kind of matter of you know elite consensus making. It's yes. sort of it's something that's sort of much different from that, which is what separates it from. And I think we'll we'll sort of see as we go on, sort of as we look at who's tried to do what when, you know, uh, that the sort of elite consensus making model of you know trying to um uh sort of. Uh, you might say end the drug war, so to speak, is just a sort of embarrassing failure after embarrassing failure, depending on your or point even, of view. Even like raise awareness, you know? Yeah. The that <laughs> those people love to raise awareness about shit <laughs> and reduce stigma. We got to reduce all the stigma as well. Got to reduce the stigma. We're reducing it. Um, but so let's let's talk about sort of the thing that I think is again what has been sort of sort of like capturing headlines recently. Right, which is this uh, this story about uh, drug toxicity? So um, the coroner service in BC records uh, over a th- just over a thousand overdose deaths in the first half of 2021. Uh, sort of the, that's the worst six month period ever, um, and that you know this is uh, that the illicit drug toxicity is now the leading cause of death in BC for people aged 19 to 39, which is I, I quite a quite astonishing, I think, thing thing to read. Sort of looking at this from the outside. Yeah, it's a right. mind boggling stat. Yeah, like this is to, for it to be the leading cause of death uh, for sort of yeah for people who are who are rather well, relatively young. So I mean, can you sort of talk a little bit about like what do we mean when we say toxicity? How does this sort of th- th- this thing that is their most recent media manifestation of what's going on here? How does that sort of, what does that really mean, and how is that like um, connecting to sort of the um, the rea- the lived reality of sort of this, this thing on on the street, so to speak? We like to say that the most dangerous thing about drugs is that they're illegal, mm-hmm. and uh, the drugs that I like, um, opioids, heroin, all that, um, that's been illegal or started to become illegal in in 1908, about a kilometer from where I'm sitting right now in. Um, in Vancouver. And, um, we've seen like waves of, of, um, overdose crises since then, uh, and officially recognized are two of them. The one that's been going on since April of 2016, mm-hmm. that's grabbing all the headlines so that, you know, it's five years, yeah. five and a half years. And then in the nineties and, um, Dan, you might remember I, when you I, lived here, I was going to bring that up. That's, uh, that was like, you know, a kind of question nested inside this bigger question, uh, which is, well, yeah, when I lived in Vancouver, there was a wave of uh, heroin overdoses 
mainly attributed in the press to a uh, like a power struggle between uh, bikers and the sort of what the press was saying was like newly imported organized crime from uh, like post handover Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, the the pattern of of drug trade around the world is always changing in response to the pressures that, um, you know, uh, military programs, you know, like U.S. based programs to wipe out drug drug cultivation and uh, border programs and local police programs. So there's like this kind of international enforcement effort mm-hmm. that's been going on. Like, you know, it's uh, like I'm saying, it started here. Like the very first hard drug arrest was this dude uh, in Market Alley behind um you know, behind the Carnegie Center, behind the old city hall in Vancouver in 1908. And and ever since then, it's just been increasing and increasing. And so back then, people used to just smoke opium. Yeah. And then there was this incentive to get something that was smaller and stronger, just like alcohol prohibition. People would drink beer and then it's moonshine, right? So it's like the enforcement actually causes this acceleration in potency. It causes and, the product so, to respond almost like... That's right. Yeah, it's it's capitalism. It's pure capitalism. Um, but it's it's also like uh, the um, added like the fuel on that bonfire uh, is enforcement. That's what just drives I- innovation, like to find smaller and smaller methods. So, yeah, by the 90s, uh, there was something called China White around here, which was just strong heroin. And yeah. it was just like a- a- after, you know, um, you know, like 80 years of it going from opium to morphine to heroin to injecting heroin to stronger heroin to china white and now we're into you know fentanyl carfentanyl benzodiazepines in the dope it's just a long march and so my life i've just seen people die ever since i was um a teenager you know like just you know constantly and certainly a lot more people die in these big clumps like in the 90s and and now yeah but uh it's just it's just the action of drug policy and and sometimes the officials notice and declare it an official emergency like they did in the 90s and now and sometimes they don't that was one of my main reasons for leaving vancouver you know there's a another branch of my life that I could have taken where I moved from Cowichan Lake to Victoria British Columbia to Vancouver and just stayed there and made music and tried to make a go of it. But one of the main reasons I left in the, in the late nineties is because I had a bunch of friends pass the, like die overdose from uh, like during this wave. And, and yeah, I, think I was, you and me knew some of the same people there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I was involved, you know, in that, uh, in that whole scene myself. And I just, I, I had a point where I was like, I might end up, I might end up being the next one, you know, so I got to get out of here. Um, and it was, yeah, it was very, uh, it was very real and very apparent that I had to leave. I'm glad we're both still here on the right side of the dirt to have this conversation. Absolutely. You know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm middle-aged and I had a birthday, uh, last year and people were laughing at me for being old. And I was like, fuck you. I'm, I'm happy to be alive. Like when those numbers get big, I celebrate that. I was just flying the bird. That's right, man. <laughs> Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about, about the history, right? The history of how, of how we get, because if we think about 1908, the first person in, is arrested for possession of a hard drug, and then we get to sort of 2009, where this is now being covered, kind of, this is being covered by people who see themselves as, cover, as, as covering a war, right? And I'm, I'm speaking sort of more about like, um, 
uh, sort of various post media outlets sort of talking about how, oh, this is officially a war now. Vancouver is like a war zone. Uh, the gangs control, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about how we get from 1908 to uh, the post media declaring that there is officially a war going on in Vancouver and Alberta? I don't know, Sam, you want to, I just talked for a long time. Do you want to? <laughs> From 1908 to 2009, what happened? Yeah, well, let's I go. Question, <laughs> I think, I think let, let's, talk, let's talk about the general shape of the history. Like what, why, why did, why did sort of it keep intensifying? And how do we account for the fact that we sort of magicked a sort of, you know, what we call a war or what columnists call a war uh, into existence sort of in our own country? Well, the, the early period of this, you know, it's important to say had absolutely no reference to, to like public health in the policymaking, right? Mm-hmm. It was all pure racism uh, or sort of like moral crises. Um, there's a, there's like a lauded um, sort of Canadian feminist icon, uh, Emily Murphy, who wrote a book called The Black Candle, which, mm-hmm. um, which just basically made a straight up um, argument that drugs were a uh, part of the uh, uh, evil plan by the Chinese and um and black people um to sort of uh to to kidnap and and sexually enslave white women and a lot of the kind of early legislating that happens um is really sort of like driven by that moral panic around <laughs> I just, I'm just going to jump in and say that it, that's that's really interesting to hear, considering that a lot of the like current writing on the uh, sort of in, in, enmeshment of the real estate industry and fentanyl, which we'll talk about later, uh, a lot of Sam Cooper's writing has he has kind of inadvertently or or on purpose <laughs> reached the same conclusion where. Uh, you know, the fentanyl crisis is being driven by uh, intelligence agents, the Chinese government. I don't know. I mean, people can make that shit here, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like you can make people make fentanyl like in this neighborhood. Yeah. But uh, but what if we said it was the uh, nefarious Chinese who were uh, using it to try to uh, drive up property prices and reduce trust in elected officials? <laughs> yeah. This uh, seems to but- be a through line is what I'm saying from what you're talking about. Yeah, Sam. definitely. Definitely. It's, yeah, there's there's an unbroken history of that kind of idea. I mean, in the in the 60s, you start to see um, white middle class, like mo- like disproportionately guys like smoke weed, um, a drug that had been sort of um, associated and legally legally bound to these these other drugs um, that had pretty stark criminal penalties attached to them. And that's really the beginning of this sort of um, this ongoing debate that we have over whether or not quote unquote addiction should be treated as a a health problem or a justice problem. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the more you look into that, the more you realize that treating it like either produces like a lot of death and bad outcomes overall um uh so um but yeah i think that that's there's been those two kind of through lines i mean we still have the hardcore war on drugs racist cops uh violent kind of approach to suppressing drug users and drug trafficking Mm -hmm. and then on top of that we have this sort of panopticon um more more sort of like technocratic liberal surveillance and um and control sort of and incentivizing medical systems to try to get people to stop 
getting high. Um, and those are and and between those two approaches, th- those are our sort of main strategies for um, for dealing with drug use. And both of them, uh, mm. both of them contribute to the overdose deaths. They don't they don't help fix so them. Mostly. Are we to say basically we we start as something in, in this sort of early the first half of the twentieth century? We start with this quite overtly uh, sort of xenophobic um, campaign that sort of sees uh, sort of drug enforcement as a way to achieve it again, overtly basically white nationalist agenda. And then as we get into the 60s, we sort of transform it a little bit and we start to get these discussions around sort of addiction, but again, still like policing via hospitals, basically what it is that people are doing. And And we get them because the white kids are using the drugs, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's always been an effort to preserve white innocence going right back to the beginning. So you think about Mackenzie King, and I, I love your guys' um, episode on, on that. Mm-hmm. On him. Oh, thanks. Um, you know, Canada's longest serving prime minister who often got advice from beyond the grave through seances on how to govern <laughs> and conduct wars and stuff. Uh, so this guy, he, he was a deputy minister when he was sent out here. You know, one of the highest ranking um, bureaucrats in the civil service is a deputy minister. He was sent out here by the Minister of Labor to see if there were uh, compensations owed um, after a big white racist riot that smashed up Japantown and Chinatown. This is how the drug war started in Canada by a bureaucrat doing some number crunching. So he came out here because um, Asiatic Exclusion League was a big political force and like stopping immigration from Asia was like a massive thing in BC, supported by parliamentarians and members of the Legislative Assembly, the mayor. Um, it was, it was very mainstream, not like Maxime Bernier. This was like mainstream. Right. Uh, and, and, and lots of support in the rest of Canada for this too. Uh, and so, uh, he, this, uh, Mackenzie King comes out here, he tallies up some broken windows. And one of the places he goes to look at with a broken window is opium factory. And he hears about, uh, quote, white women and girls being involved in smoking opium. And this outrages him. Mm -hmm. And this like anti like the Asiatic Exclusion League politics is the is the car that drove him all the way to the highest office in Canada. This is how he got noticed by Laurier, Prime Minister Laurier. This is where he decided to write his PhD on this stuff. This is when he decided to run for office uh, and he became an MP the next year. Uh, you know, this ha- that riot happened in 1907. The inquiry and the law happened in 1908. He was an MP by 1908. He was a minister by 1908. I mean, by government speed, prohibition happened pretty fast. And this guy started getting power pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and he continued the project. But this was based on, obviously, xenophobia. But this... Um, this great effort to preserve the innocence of white people that has been a constant through the drug war and a constant in Canada to be like, Oh, we're not those terrible people who uh, caused the unmarked graves or supported residential schools or anything. We're just always innocent. There's, there's terrible things happening, but we're always innocent. And that project has, has really been true. So if you read some of the globe and mail and national post coverage, uh, it will find a non poor, um, a white um, drug user who's died and humanize them way more than the typical coverage of someone with reference to their criminal record or something like that. You know, the 100 percent They'll talk about the dog and the bicycle and the blonde hair that was tussled and all that. You know, I remember um, I remember in the 90s, like the this sort of hysterical headline coverage, like the thing that got um, 
the sort of epidemic of overdoses into the press was uh, kids like kids from North End going in and, you know, uh, not knowing what they were doing and, and snorting like incredibly pure heroin and then dying. And then that was that was what drew attention to that. Not uh, not the people who actually lived there, you know, in that community. And that's been happening forever. I mean, in the it may have been in the late 50s, but like the Toronto Morality Squad arrested a, a bunch of uh, middle class people for for um, holding a house party where everybody got too drunk and brought them to um, and brought them to jail where they were they were stripped and deloused. And that became like a major media scandal. It was the normal treatment of people for the crime they had done. But you had a new social class kind of affected and by these policies and then and then the policies um suddenly were on trial you know mm-hmm. like in the media like is this but you know is this disgusting and and um a, and it's, it's like kind of violating behavior for people who just wanted to get drunk so i think like yeah i mean you see this this all through the story basically i mean we talk about 1908 is when the opium act was passed you know in the wake of that uh, racist riot in vancouver but the real first uh, prohibition legislation was the Indian Act. And I think it was uh, the late uh, 19th century. Yep. An amendment was put on making it uh, illegal for a, quote, registered Indian, unquote, to be in a state of intoxication. And later on in the act, the intoxication was to include, you know, anything from alcohol to opium uh, preparations and all that. And it gave, you know, cops the ability to just make all those decisions on the spot and to uh, treat people accordingly. So it was, it's just like, it's white supremacist from the beginning. And as the Canadian way goes, indigenous people get it first and worst, you know? So the, the, and the stats today, right now, uh, fatal overdoses amongst indigenous people are overrepresented in the overdose statistics and, and people of color also. So it's like that, that pattern and including overrepresentations of like who gets carded, who gets harassed, beaten, arrested, jailed, all that stuff. Um, from the drug war it's it's maintained uh, constantly yeah it's it's enforced and definitely living there uh i th- i think people who visit vancouver like i'm thinking from the perspective of a band right um having having grown up in bc it's always interesting to me to see uh especially american bands who come through and say play at the rickshaw or something right and are just mm-hmm. fucking horrified because the only thing they've seen like that is maybe the tenderloin before San Francisco was like captured by uh, tech money and turned into like a kind of panopticon police state. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been a drug user in the tenderloin and the downtown East side. And I definitely feel the similarity of those neighborhoods and and the rich offer people don't know is like, you know, 200 meters or a hundred meters from where that first drug arrest happened. That's on the right. Downtown East side. Yeah. 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 So it's always, yeah, it's always fascinating to me to have, to have Americans be, uh, they have their preconceived notion of Canada and then they come and then, you know, you have to talk to them about how the downtown East side is the poorest postal code in the country. And I think during the nineties, if I'm not mistaken, it was the highest AIDS rate in, uh, any place in North America. Yeah, that's in right. The industrialized world. Yeah. One of the highest in the industrialized world. Yeah. In yeah, fact, and, and it was happening too, right? around the same time. Yeah, it was the same time as the overdose crisis. So we had a virus and an overdose crisis having a dual public health emergency in yeah. the 90s as we have a virus and an overdose crisis. It's just the virus is COVID now. 
Yeah. You know, so it's like this incredible combination of forces happening twice in a lot of people's lifetime. Absolutely. I think the the best historical comparison probably is the AIDS epidemic and the kind of um and and the the homophobic racist response by by the US government to that. I I think that that's sort of what we're living through right now. That's how it's going to be regarded by historians later. And I think a lot of the sort of feckless, um, slightly left of center, polite politicians in this country who think they'll, they'll skate uh, by sort of um, not regarded as villains because they, they say sort of relatively progressive sounding things while doing absolutely nothing to, to stop all the death. Um, I think that they'll, they'll be remembered in the same way that the, the villains of that, of, of that crisis are remembered today. Like, I, I really think that's what's coming for them. So. I mean, I hope so, but we don't even remember our own villains properly. Like Premier Van Der Zam, Bill Van Der Zam yes. was a fundamentalist from the, from the 80s, early yeah. 90s, I think, Premier of British Columbia. And he, he said he was, he was very much against any AIDS education in high school. So I got no, I was a drug user before having any AIDS education. So I didn't know that the virus could live in your spoon or in a cotton or something. I mean, I, I made really good efforts to try not to share needles or if I did, um, we would bleach them and, and all that, try to clean them. Yeah. But because of him, I didn't know what in the fuck I was doing. You know, so we, <laughs> like we have our own, our own local villains that we kind of, you know, whenever he dies, I don't know if he's died. They'll probably have lovely speeches and we'll remember this guy, not as a hateful bigot, but as just like, oh, he was a lovely premier of BC who liked to garden or something like this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of villains from that era that uh, th- th- even minor villains that that will history will not judge because uh, they will be forgotten, like the mayor of uh, Victoria during that period who set up a, a very famously set up a red zone. So there was like a oh, yeah. <laughs> three strikes policy in Victoria uh, for sleeping rough or um, it was basically the town from fucking footloose. Like uh, they banned drumming on the street at one point to try and deal with like hippies. You know? But if you violated uh, these municipal bylaws uh, three times, you were banished to outside of the red zone, which for a lot of drug users and, uh, you know, homeless people meant uh, not having access to services like food banks or mental health counseling or whatever, you know, like, like you were just out in the fucking suburbs. And uh, yeah, I think we still have a lot of um, local politicians in BC who are against just having um, needle distribution in their town. And the mayor of Penticton, for instance, you know, who got yeah. who got busted uh, throwing dog shit in front of a homeless shelter <laughs> and has railed against like safe injection sites. Mm. Yeah, no, there's lots of um, there's lots of villains. You're right. You guys are right. That will never get remembered. But I think I think maybe uh, maybe John Horgan is somebody who is not going to be able to escape the legacy of this, even though. Or, or yeah. say someone like Adrian Dix, who uh, BC's Minister of Health, who has steadfastly uh, not talked about the overdose crisis. Um, uh, I don't think I, I don't think he's going to be able to duck it in the way that he thinks he can. Or yeah. I hope he can. Yeah. I think anyway. it, it's such a Canadian thing, right? Is that when um, social movements or groups of workers are able to organize, um, often the reaction is, "Well, we got to start talking about these people more politely." Mm-hmm. You know, so um, in the in the 
in the sixties, there was this, there's this effort to, to be, um, you know, the material conditions of people's lives didn't change very much, but there's this effort to have a different kind of conversation in Canada. And that's usually what happens is like over my lifetime, um, we never used to have the word, uh, drug user or people who use drugs. There's just always the pejorative ones, junkie or addict or whatever yeah. like that. And so you just never got called anything nice in the newspaper and you could never even describe yourself in any way that you would could stand. And so that, that um, the, the words have changed. The way people talk has changed. They've been kinder and gentler o- often. I mean, we still have a very conservative media environment here. So there's still lots of the same old crap going on as always has been. But this is kind of like liberal centrist, mushy middle Canada's response to stuff. And maybe they'll they'll NGOify things a little bit, you know, spread some funding around, yeah. have some consultative bodies. But that's it. And and it's really um, it's really troubling because you want that stuff to happen. Right. You want better research. You don't want to be called a junkie in the newspaper. You want these kinds of improvements. But at the same time, it makes um, organizing really difficult because it starts to obfuscate who's the enemy and what's going on. And, and liberals love to stand aside from power as yes. if they're not in charge. And it's it's sort of like it always reminds me of the same thing of capitalism, right? Capitalism just likes to operate as the invisible hand or whatever. It doesn't need someone to advertise that it exists in its market forces. In fact, I think capitalism doesn't really want the Fraser Institute pointing at it all the time. Absolutely. It just wants to get on with things and do its business. And that's what liberal politicians are like. They don't like to call attention to the fact that they're in, in charge and, and have power. They like the phantom power of just like allowing the system to grind on it as it has been and standing aside and wringing their hands. And, Oh, if only there was something I could do, <laughs> if only there was strings I could pull or something. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a really a common through line in Canada, you know? So even the beginning of our drug war wasn't a triumphant um, speech from a prime minister saying, we're going to stamp out this evil. It was just a bureaucrat yeah. filing paperwork on something else. <laughs> You know, and when the Opium Act got to the House of Commons in 1908, there weren't people getting up and making speeches about how we're going to save Canada from the scourge of opium. Everyone just voted for it and got on with other business. There was no big discussion. Yeah, the engine engine kept moving forward. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like the polite maple syrup or out here, you know, it's like we do we do aggressive billionaire plutocrat bullshit in yoga pants. You know what I mean? We just try to do it a little bit nicer, you know, like. We'll fuck you up, but we'll have oat milk in the coffee while we're doing it or whatever. What I, I mean, to, to that point, one of my first uh, experiences critique, like having to do an internal critique of liberalism was getting involved with um, things like food, not bombs and, and other, you know, aid distribution systems for the downtown east side. And then seeing how those organizations would uh, inevitably pull away from working directly at, you know, ground zero. Right. Like. Like the distribution would move from uh, the park down th- in, in the downtown east side to, oh, let's just do it on commercial drive, you know? <laughs> like, oh, but, I had no idea like, that happened. And I, yeah, there were a couple of struggle sessions within that organization and a couple other uh, people that I worked with. But, but I, yeah, I really had to uh, do some self critique about, I think that was maybe the first time I realized what like capital L liberalism was. So if, if I can ask, right, we talk about, naming the enemy right um before i sort of go back into the into sort of some some historical discussions here and i want to ask right who does be who does sort of small l liberalism represented in bc by the ndp name as the enemy or do they sort of just name meanness as the enemy here it's the drugs themselves right garth meanness i think meanness and big pharma yeah so it's like and the drugs themselves 
Yeah, meanness, big pharma, and sometimes mm-hmm. the gangs. You know, so we have a public right. safety minister, Mark Farnworth, who's, you know, they, they, actually the whole cabinet is pretty pro-cop. And the cops in BC, as everywhere, periodically like to scare people about gangs and gang shootings and, and gang this and gang that. And so I, I think it's like, you know, gangs and big pharma and and uh, backwards ideas in people's heads. But certainly the government themselves they're just doing everything they can, you know, in, in, in the liberal view and this force of nature, it's like a, a tsunami or something like that. They, they wish they could build better uh, dikes or, or, or flood warnings or whatever, but it's just, it's a force of nature. It's something not, not caused by them. You know, we, we say it's a, obviously a force of policy, but they react like it's this, it's, it's external thing, which is the classic liberal uh, way to do stuff is to, is to act like you're not the cause of the problems and you don't have the power to address them. You're just sort of like a bystander. And what's astonishing history. as well, right, is that at no, is that the, the sort of um, the switch, right? The, the game of three card Monty that switches. This is about keeping the influence of the pernicious Chinese at a minimum uh, to this is a, a sort of obvious public health position that has to be taken seriously happens. And then the liberal position is to say, well, obviously, this is a public health pr- crisis that has to be taken seriously. But there is never sort of any account of the of how we made that change. It's just a thing that's always been there. And you have to act like it's this serious thing, even though it is sort of quite, quite ridiculous on its face in its history. It has no roots in being this public health thing. It's just marketed as that. And so to the, 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 liberal, the, the liberal position of we can't do anything about this because, because it's always been there, basically, um, or because it's just this uh, sort of prima facie good thing to be doing, it's something that it, I think sort of really doesn't stand up to any kind of serious thinking about history, for example, right? It's that, that, that this, we can't change this. Well, why? Because the roots of this are, as you say, you know, um, a sort of bureaucratic decision in 1908. Um, and it hasn't been, there has been no, so it has never been really re-justified. The marketing has just changed. Oh, I think there's even like, um, you know, it's, we always think, oh, the idea that this is a health problem is an improvement on the old, this is a criminal, like moral failing of the individuals that, that it used to be, you're a criminal and morally broken and right. you should be in jail. And now it's like, you have a disease, your brain is injured somehow, maybe from a childhood trauma or whatever it is, you need us to fix you. And and crackdown is a different take. From my experience, um, the real harms uh, about being wired to opioids, they come from external forces. You know, they come from law enforcement. They come from the fact that the drug supply is illegal. So it's unregulated. You don't know what you're getting. They come from economic forces. Like um, the the cost of this stuff is unnecessarily high because it's illegal. All of the chaos in my life from, you know, being broke all the time to law enforcement, to fucked up relationships, it all comes from prohibition, not from the molecule itself. And so um, I think about, you know, Right now, uh, you know, I work long days. I got a lot going on and uh, I take methadone, which isn't an opioid. It just happens to be legal and available from the um, pharmacy and it won't bankrupt me. But I'm still wired to an an opioid. You know, if I stopped using it, uh, there'd be trouble. Like if I didn't take it this morning, I would be throwing up right now instead of talking. So like it's it's like the health, the health thing, it's 
it's got its own baked in problems, you know, like it's, it doesn't quite describe our reality. And it also lets the state off the hook for the, the ones being uh, causing all, all the symptoms, you know, so I think we're, you know, we're trying to uh, reveal a different side of this. And then, and then the other thing is um, most people who die from overdose aren't like me. They aren't daily opioid users. They aren't wired to the substance. They're like weekend warriors or people yeah. who are just partying or whatever. They're just dipping and, in. I mean, yeah, for sure. It, this is like British Columbia, the West, you know, we full of resource workers. People like to party on the weekends. People have always like, I come from a, a family of loggers, you know, people like to party yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Um, people have like, as far as I can remember from uh, working in construction and mining and all that, it's people do Coke on the weekends and shit. And that's just the way it is. That's something and that it, is if, never, ever yeah. talked about when, when, no. you know, uh, provincial press or federal press talks about this. Cause like, you know, my experience growing up in Cowichan Lake resource extraction, you know, my family was one of the few families that wasn't, Know, supporting themselves working in the woods but in my high school circa grade 10 and 11 perfectly normal to steal a bit of uh, your dad's eight ball and you know <laughs> like <laughs> right? for, for real yeah. and and when i met people from out east uh from you know kind of from cities I, they were sort of shocked when i was talking about my experiences in high school with drugs mm. They're just like, oh, wow, that's, uh, hmm. Well, I, I think it, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a cultural thing. It, it is baked into this culture of, of the West and, and resource extraction and, and working really hard and making a shitload of money and being physically and mentally broken and exhausted and then given all this cash and like, I don't know, a week off. What, what else are you going to fucking do if you're in your 20s? Yeah. Fucking A. You're going to get yeah. out of your yeah. fucking mind. They, you know? can, like, they can never admit that it's fun. They can never admit that people enjoy it. Yes. No. They can never admit that. Because, <laughs> yeah. Well, and that and that's chalked through the whole thing because like even like on the academic level or whatever, there's a lot of funding to research harms, right? If you're going to be addressing harms, you can get some money. But that, but but no one ever wants to, to look at euphoria or any of the kind of more textural reasons why people use drugs in the first place, what it is about drugs people like. Um, that stuff is much less fundable. And so what you have is you have this kind of like black hole where people, I think the people setting the policy don't even have a bait. I mean, they don't use these kind of drugs. They, they don't understand. This is not their lifestyle. And they I think they don't, they don't work the kind of jobs that would facilitate having to use those kind of drugs or the necessity of possibly of using those drugs. That's right. And I don't think, and I think like on a more technocratic level, they just don't even understand what it is people are looking for when they use drugs. I think a lot of these, a lot of these kind of health technocrats understand what, what we would call dope sickness, like craving and withdrawal symptoms to be like the major driver of people's drug use. And so they try to substitute um, the drugs that people like to use uh, illicit, in the illicit market for things that, that reduce craving and withdrawal symptoms, but don't get you high. Mm -hmm. And they figure, oh, this will work just fine you know like no it yeah. won't because people want to no, get and, high right so yeah, i mean exactly I think, yeah and like and, and the thing they can't it, it, if they admitted that you know people like to get high for all kinds of, of reasons because it's fun or whatever then you know all of a sudden it's very di then all of a sudden you start to empathize with the drug user i think because it's like oh well, this person just wants to do something that they enjoy and the entire setup 
of the way that it's talked about in the media, academia, by law enforcement, especially. I actually have some quotes from Farnworth in here. Um, it, it must never, that must never be normal. It must always be this crazy thing from beyond the pale of acceptability and health and whatever, right? It must, it must never be allowed to look like something a normal person would do. And then, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be disease, exactly. right? It's a yeah, disease. It goes in, in, and this, and I, I mean, I think it's mostly also just because like those health technocrats, the health technocrats now are just the yoga pants version of Mackenzie King, where they have an idea of what they think a good <laughs> life is, right? <laughs> They're doing can seances we, uh, too, can, Riley. They're 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 doing astrology. They're fucking doing tarot. They are it's, yoga pants, Mackenzie King. Same. Yeah, sorry. It's true, actually. This is really deeply Some of us are true. Visual because- thinkers, though, you know. Like now, I'm thinking of yoga pants, Mackenzie King over here. It's kind of hot. Yeah, I think it's kind of yeah. hot, actually. Yeah. I I just think when the when the doctors like I've had the same methadone doctor for a long time, but I've I've seen a few people and I've been to the twelve step meetings a lot. You know that never worked out for me but people always reach this moment where they try to explain the brain disease model of addiction to you they tell you you have this chronic relapsing brain disease and um very famous doctors like gabber mate from out here will say yeah your brain your brain was injured by a childhood trauma which you know i did i did have that and you know it's broken you'll never be the same you you have this built-in addiction you're stuck in this childlike state um and, and they talk about this stuff and it all sounds like Mackenzie King at a seance to me. It all sounds like this loopy or, or like, um, you know, Greek medicine where they're telling you about the, you, the balance of humors are wrong or something like this. You know, it just all sounds like speculation to me. Uh, you know, otherwise they'd just be able to put, put my head in a MRI machine and go, oh yeah, I can see you're a, you're a dope fiend. <laughs> we can see it right there, but it doesn't yeah. work like that. Right. So it's like, this is just their their super political, super ideological theory about the way that I'm broken, the most current theory about the way that I'm broken. I'm just like, it has never sounded like a satisfying explanation oh, to of me. Of course not. Um, and it's because it's, be, it's, it's because it's like, it's like a, the way I, that's because the way I see it is just the marketing of the same thing. It's, it's the same product. It's just being marketed differently. The drug war itself is the same product. Mm-hmm. It's just being marketed differently. Um, so I, I would like to. Uh, I got two two ways we can go. Um, a, a little bit from uh, from Farnworth because we the one we've talked a lot about these sort of politics, media, and academia sort of ways they like to represent uh, like this this community, this this issue, whatever you want to call it. Um, I want to talk a little more about the police themselves. So uh, Mike Farnworth, BC Solicitor General, uh, told reporters uh, that. Uh, these gangsters, there's only two ways this is going to end for them. It's either jail or they're dead. And if they're dead, they're not mourned by anybody but their family because they've, they're forgotten by everybody else. So uh, Mike Farnworth trying to do like a, an action movie operator quote here. Um, it seems like there is yeah. a great deal of viciousness uh, whenever law enforcement is asked to speak about this issue. Well, Farnworth, um, in, in 2019, Bonnie Henry uh, recommended that the NDP... Um, use some of their their power to de facto decriminalize um, uh, uh, drug possession in in BC, and he just instantly shut it down. So he, I mean, he's been a, a staunch supporter of the drug war this whole time. Um, that quote about about the gangs, I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's this um, enduring fantasy 
that uh, that we're on the verge of arresting the last criminal and making drugs inaccessible to people. And then, and then, <laughs> like if you the it, last it's drug a, dealer in, in Vancouver, yeah. just we got him hi- hiding in a fucking Vancouver yeah. special basement the suite. La- the last guy, we got him. There's no more. The, his uh, his uh, Adidas tearaways are going to be in a museum is, one day. Yeah, you can't exactly. actually catch him because he is so busy. <laughs> He's I mean, super if, busy. <laughs> if honestly, if you if you want if you want like a gauge of the unseriousness Sorry, of the mainstream he told media, the police he'd turn himself in in forty five minutes, but they're still waiting. It's been like four hours. What the hell? Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, man. it was just like if you want if you want to gauge on the unseriousness of Canada's media, like when when they do this, like cage rattling bullshit about you, you know like oh we're gonna get all these gangsters or whatever right why does no one ask like oh do you do you think you're gonna actually um you're, you're gonna actually influence the supply of drugs in a way that makes them inaccessible to people in the city like is that the goal and when do you think you're gonna accomplish it by i mean they couldn't they couldn't with a straight face tell you that they they wouldn't even try yeah. No. They they would not even try. And and on our show, Garth, maybe you could talk. We you actually talked to a cop where you asked him like, <laughs> "When are you going to win the drug war?" Basically, and he couldn't say he couldn't say that it was winnable. He knows it's not winnable. And, and they'll never they'll never um, recognize the harms that they cause by doing this. You know, there was um, a big bust here about two months ago where they you know a. a a BC wide thing, you know, it was a big sting and they seized a bunch of, I guess, fentanyl. And, you know, they like to package it up and put it on the table for the media. And but they have so to be very careful because even if a single <laughs> grain That's of fentanyl right. comes anywhere near any of these, any of these hugs. <laughs> it would kill the whole world, Dan. Yeah. Everyone yeah. in the world would die from yeah. that. Yeah. We, we, do, we have added a homeopathic <laughs> amount of fentanyl to BC's water supply and all of the cops just keel over. <laughs> Yeah. Ooh, uh. yeah the, the tummy ache the blue and the then, great blue and, tummy ache of bc yeah. <laughs> and um they they put all this dope on the table and within about uh 48 hours um all of the like i know the 300 block the ecosystem of of drug distribution on the 300 block of east Hastings probably better than i know anywhere else and right away all debts are called on the block. So often people are able to get um, fronted an amount to go sell. And then, you know, they often sometimes have to front some of their clients. So there's a certain amount of credit that flows in the system. It's it's not the majority, but um, that tightening happened almost immediately. So if you imagine uh, something like 2008, when all there was a big credit crisis, there was a little there was a little version of that on the block. Um, you yeah. know, uh, and so all all debts were called. And if you couldn't pay your debt, you could not get more drugs. Um, the original sources of the drugs was now cut off by that big bust where they put all the drugs on the table. So now it, there was like people hunting for different sources. Um, some people, because of the, those credit reasons, couldn't be the distributors like the the frontline dealers anymore. So there were new people showing up. And um, because the supply lines were now different, there was a who is going to be supplying this block? There was a right. question on it. So all the people we knew were suffering because they owed money and they couldn't get anything else. They couldn't keep that credit sort of 
uh, hamster wheel going, or they couldn't find their original uh, dealer who they kind of trusted a little bit. They would know, well, I, I kind of know the strength and what I'm getting from this person. And they're getting and sick. There was a, that's right. They're, they're getting sick. So other people are getting new dope and overdosing. And then there is a vacuum of who's, who's supplying this place now? Who's in charge? And so right away we see this uptick of tension and even violence. And it's been uh, quite hairy around there recently. But this happens every time you see on TV a table full of drugs. There is a there is a place like the 300 block of East Hastings where things get noticeably worse um, at the at the at the street level, at the at the frontline drug user. And I don't know, subsistence dealer level. Things get really, really nasty and tight. And so for for people who are involved in making Crackdown, our editorial board, uh, a lot of people work and live right around there. Um things have gotten tighter and worse because of that bust. And the police will never, will never recognize this. And then to circle back to what we were talking about at the beginning is they're just incentivizing people to find something that's smaller and stronger and sneakier. Yeah. You know, they're just accelerating that arms race. Absolutely. And then, and then Garth, just to, just to add on that kind of an echo of that is what happened with the prescription opioids um, where you have this like so-called overprescribing crisis that happens and actually a uh, lot hillbilly of, heroin and all that yeah yeah and actually this is a this is um a concern of the technocrat health policymakers before the overdose crisis and i think it remains more of a concern to them than the overdose crisis um and and they were really afraid that basically the health system was quote-unquote addicting people because people had chronic pain and then they became reliant on painkillers as a way to deal with their chronic pain. That's bad. That's addicting people. So they set up new prescribing guidelines and surveillance systems. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what they did is they, they um, ambitiously cut people off their medication. Yeah. And then they bragged about that, you know, and they can, and they can show and point to certain stats about how they've, you know, they, um, they can reduce like, overdoses on illicit on licit medications and say well what a triumph right but you know if if you look at the broader stats i mean these are people who continued to have serious co- chronic pain problems and many of them went out into the illicit marketplace to to make up uh, what they needed to get after being cut off their medications and many of those people then died of overdoses yeah. And it's they, still the, it's and, still happening. Like I have a friend yeah. in the Midwest right now who is dealing with this, who's uh, been prescribed like a certain amount of opiates to deal with uh, chronic pain. And his doctor is now under scrutiny from this sort of clamp down on like pill mills or over prescribing. And there's really no exit strategy for him except for uh, going through controlled withdrawal. And, and it's Garth- not it's not a it's not a solution at all. I mean, we, this is an example of where crackdown is really um, in the service of community struggle. Um, in in 2015, I sat in a meeting full of people and um, my my best friend for 30 years. And we've used like uh, like a lot, a lot of drugs together. We could probably buy a, a whole condo tower in Vancouver <laughs> if we had saved the money. Uh, oh, we, man. <laughs> he puts up his hand. He's like, oh, I'm getting cut off my prescription for morphine. And, um, you know, we talk about that for a little while and, and Laura, who's chairing the meeting, she says, is anybody else? And all these hands go up and we're like, what the fuck is going on? We, we didn't know that we were caught in the eddy of this giant continent wide deprescribing phenomenon of just cutting everybody off. 
But, um, you know, we at Crackdown, we were able to like talk to Jeff, talk to his doctor, ask, why did you cut this guy off? Talk to experts from North America and tell the whole story of how one guy's prescription in 2015 connects to this giant paranoia, this giant, giant drug panic about um, Mm -hmm. about opioids. And we kind of you kind of can see from that that people think of the problem differently. Like I think of the problem as my friends are dying. It's a people are dead problem. Yeah. They think of it as, uh, oh, people are using drugs problem, which I don't really care about. In fact, when when prescribing was looser, that was really good for me and Jeff. We could get something that was a prescription opioid, you know, maybe not prescribed to us, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. uh, pharmaceutical instead of something off the street. So it was actually safer for us. Well, yeah. But like uh, they call it the opioid crisis. Right. Like the word is right there. They call it the opioid crisis because the crisis for them is that people are using opioids and we call it the overdose crisis or poisoning or whatever, because people are dying. And it's like they're, they're the lens is focused at different problems. It seems yeah, to like be I this think- consistent issue of overcorrection, right? Like you have the thing in the nineties and then there's an overcorrection of like flooding the downtown East side with uh, police. And then you, it's like, and- I think what's the thing in the nineties too, that like the, the pharmaceutical companies that get that told they're over prescribing um, people have chronic pain, but we live in capitalism where, where almost everybody has chronic alienation. And fuck, opioids are the perfect thing for chronic alienation. Yeah, you know, if you have to work for a shitty job that's really hard on your body or whatever, they're the right thing. But also, if you have to work at a shitty job that's really alienating, boring, you just don't like being bossed around, like your life is soul crushing and empty and fucked up, and the world is going to end because we keep depositing all the carbon into the atmosphere or fucking whatever, it's the, it's the right cushion. It's the right cushion to lie down on as the whole planet goes off a cliff. Of yeah. course, more people are going to be doing it. It's not because it's the Sacklers who, yes, they are cartoon villains, told everybody to. It's because it really fills a material need, like a spiritual hole that capitalism has fired right through all of our hearts like, and souls. Without yeah. religion to be the opiate of the masses, like an opiate became necessary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things that we talked about on the very first episode of this podcast was the way in which Canada sees itself as a fundamentally more humane, um, you might say, uh, small L liberal, um, for better or for worse, and uh, functional uh, version of uh, America without its uh, obsessions, without its uh, sort of, you know, swivel-eyed reactionary uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, um, animus and all this. And I think just... No, just knowing as you even the last hour, let alone sort of anything else, just about the about how we've persecuted the drug war should certainly give the lie to that particular little bit of branding, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Canada the good is this is this lullaby that we sing to ourselves at night, and this idea that we export around the world. But I mean, we're just. You know, if America's the people that kick you in the teeth, we're the people that stab you in the back. You know, we're just like more <laughs> polite about it. We're not actively aggressive. We're just passive aggressive and, and nasty. You know, I mean, we we have all the same kinds of uh, horrors here. We just like to drizzle it in maple syrup so it doesn't taste so bitter when you swallow it. You know, but it's just like the the constant lie of Canada. You know, this place that was started as a branch plant for making rich people beaver hats in England or whatever. We've never given up on that, you know? So extraction is it the, is it the, is the business that we constantly do. And, you know, we were talking in the last hour about how a big part of 
the drug war is, uh, you know, people are just working resource jobs and partying on the weekend and doing some coke or whatever. And yeah. it's just like our drug war is wrapped up like a double helix with extractive capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just they they go together. So in the beginning, you know, there's all these fears about um, where, you know, cheap labor coming from somewhere else in the world. So we have to like jack up the borders and have a really reactionary politics in the early 20th century, which led to the drug war, you know, which started the drug war to, uh, you know, w- we have variations of it now combined with, you know, um, uh, the drug war as a pretext for the military occupation or paramilitary occupation of some neighborhoods and the and the removal of rights of some groups of people, you know, like uh, indigenous, black, people of color, get it first and worst from the cops and prosecuting the drug war. Yeah. I, I wanted to actually talk a little bit. It, it's such a, you mentioned that, like, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Vancouver's various attempts to re- historically to wrench itself out of this, uh, what, what it really is, which is a town built on resource extraction. Um to wrench its public face, uh, public face out of that, you know, and I was, and I'm thinking specifically of Expo 86 and then of course the Olympics, you know, two big rebrands of Vancouver that have happened in my lifetime. And it seems like to me, just looking at that, those, those, those eras and remembering, especially the Olympics, what happened, uh, the ripple effects always damage people in the downtown East side and, uh, people were at risk and drug users. Yeah, I mean, we like to forget that this is like a logging camp export facility here. That's that's what Vancouver was founded for. You know, Hastings Mill was one of the first buildings I think that was built here. And that's right. and within hearing distance from the downtown east side and from where Sam is and where I am right now is a port that has a trillion dollars worth of throughput per year um and is the biggest port in Canada. And so it's still it's still what we do. We're this central node on the spine of um capitalist commodity distribution. Uh, so like that, that's still strong, but we don't like, we don't like the world to think of us so crassly, you know, like, um, I think Naomi Klein, like, uh, in, in that book for, uh, I'm, I'm, there are lots of criticisms of no logo for sure. But in that book, she did point out that, um, people like to get away from this, uh, the crass sort of dirtiness of like production of commodities and just think about brands and these clean, uh, nice logo ideas, I think that's very true of Vancouver, you know, and and those efforts in uh, Expo 86, which was a real big turning point for this city. Right. It was like, let's think of ourselves as this modern world connected. um, If I may ask, what was Expo 86? A lot of Americans and Brits listen to this show. Oh, (laughs) shit. It's not just uh, the third Wolf Parade album. It's uh... (laughs) Uh, it was it was our little golden age. You know, uh, it really was, was. Yeah, it was this uh, time for Vancouver to look at itself in the mirror and think we're not this we're not this shabby uh, resource uh, production place. We're like this new, clean, connected to the world, network, uh, forward looking uh, place. And and so we took this big swath of downtown, which was used for industrial, uh, you know, it's train switching and uh, industry and stuff, and changed it to a fair with pavilions and ice cream and. A roller coaster or whatever the fuck, you know, and also, by the way, uh, um, evicted a ton of people from uh, low income housing to make room for like tourist uh, housing. And then that big chunk of downtown was uh, given uh, at a 
real fire fire sale prices to a real estate developer. And that built what Vancouver looks like now, like the glass and chrome condo world came from Expo 86. And then the Olympics was just the next chapter of that. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, the the Olympics, God, did the Olympics come for London when it came here? Like it. It's almost like the same story where any time when a city wants to imagine itself as this um, sort of very happy, shiny, sort of um, uh, identical, appealing brand that's sort of going to be very soft around the edges. The Olympics is so good for that. <laughs> and it comes mm. in and then they can just it gives the, the city um uh, this sort of the kind of like license to then file off a wall of what they consider the hard edges. So like not not very far from where um, uh, I'm I'm recording this right now, right in in Hackney Wick in East London, um, you know the largest uh, program of legally enforced evictions in England ever in history, still unparalleled, uh, was carried out in order to you know make room for the athletes to have their their fucking suck palace, right? It's, it's was that it, Carpenter's estate? Was that Stamford? Uh, it was in well, it's it's now in it, it was somewhere in West Ham. It was by Stratford, um, mm-hmm. and that's sorry, Stratford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's by Stratford, and now like again, the, it's, the Carpenters Estate, yeah. like all these big places that were built, these yeah. massive housing projects that people built, like in the 19th century or after World War II, big, huge mm-hmm. public efforts, lots of yeah. lots of money to, to house not just not social housing, just public housing for any regular working class people, just like destroyed for this sort of thing. And then what? Yes. Ha- and then like, you know, what what happens is that that directly then sort of um, contributes to more people living unstably, basically, right? In in like the, the direct impact of these big urban festivals of you know essentially like a sort of a certain bourgeois kind of urbanism. Sort of, it's it isn't just sort of tacky as it is. It also is, um, yeah, it is the direct material cause. Of sort of the destabilizing of everyone's life who actually lives there, and yeah. I wonder if this wasn't sort of the similar thing where we sort of ask why Vancouver, why the downtown east side, um, why the da- why Van- and why and how Vancouver being this like sort of gem in the crown of livable cities lists also has you know these these areas of sort of you know great sort of you know, insta- great enforced instability basically, yeah like. When uh, when Dan Dan when you you and me used to live um, pretty close to each other in East Van yeah the downtown East Side was huge East Van was all like working class it was all just you know there was there would never be a million dollar house never mind a three million dollar house here not not in a million years you know it was just yeah. like it was just like this reasonable just place for regular people to live and it was um, affordable it was it was yeah. Very affordable to live there, especially if you were, you know, uh, working class and or an artist, you know, mm. that's I, you I could think, live an OK life on welfare. Yeah. You know? And I, yeah. I just as an aside, I will say like the death of that um, livability in that area, I, I think had catastrophic effects on um, the output of Vancouver's arts community. Oh yeah. I mean, we I just remember. have no culture footprint at all anymore. And and it also just the vi- the vibes are terrible. <laughs> Bad vibes. <laughs> Bad vibes all around. I mean, if you want to talk about a, an area with no culture and bad vibes, uh can I invite you to look at the um 
the tower named after a steel billionaire whose whole thing is that it's a tower about towers in Hackney Wick now. Jesus, was made to celebrate man. the Olympics. Uh, yeah, the Arcalor Arc- Mittal Orbit uh, was a tower about towers. It's a meta tower. It's a commentary wow. on towers. Um, and it's there instead of anything anyone... Oh, it's also a slide. You can pay 20 pounds to go down. Um, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it is the... the I, I think the, the reason to sort of talk about sort of gentrification, especially gentrification like this, is because the process of making life very plush and soft and consequenceless and sort of airy almost for the pe- the type of people that you as a sort of um you know city technocrat decide you want there involves creating a lot of chaos outside of it it involves criminalizing all the people who they might not want to be around it involves huge police crackdowns it involves you know like the largest eviction program in 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 recent and ever you know yeah and so it it's, I, I think like the, not, it's, I think as we say, right, the drugs aren't the problem. The overdoses are the problem. The criminality, the criminalization of it is the problem. Um, I, I think as someone who sort of, you know, sees that, has seen that happen in another city, I, I feel like, you know, you, I, I wonder, you, you really can't, it, it, instead of asking, which I think a lot of people do, especially a lot of people who aren't Canadian, they say, well, Vancouver is this wonderful place. It has all of these things that I, a sort of, you know, bourgeois person would love. They don't necessarily self-identify like that, but whatever. Um, how come it also is famous for having all of this sort of instability there? I think rather than, than seeing those two things as at odds with one another, I think it's important to see them as fundamentally connected. Like you don't make... It's class as, war. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. It it's is. class war. And we have forced things to be visible here. So it's class war plus organization. You know, I think um, this city has, for example, the Vancouver area network of drug users was founded during the last crisis Mm -hmm. and the group has, so it's 25 years old is led campaigns, just not just against um, the drug war, but about against criminalization of poor people, houseless people, um, sex workers, all, all the people who are fucked over by the law. And so we've really fought to make visible what um, the city planners want to erase into sort of bland, you know, uh, coffee shops and food truck experiences and all that. So we're, <laughs> we're like here to give the world's uh, view of Vancouver a black eye. Mm-hmm. And people do complain about that, you know, especially around the Olympics and stuff like, oh, you're giving us a black eye. And it's just like, well, fucking a, of course, that's what we're we're trying to do. Um but, you know, like the, the, it's just like you watch any advertisement for anything and you won't get the real product. You're just getting the company's view of the product. And that's what you have in Vancouver. Like real estate is controlled by uh, a few developers. And there's a guy who's very famous and influential in the city, Bob Rennie, for marketing condos. And so the idea of what Vancouver is, is like n- not in control of anybody but the sort of investor class, you know. Mm. Vancouver's image of itself would rather be the uh, fucking Sea to Sky Highway Lamborghini race or whatever. You know? <laughs> and and, if you, and, and sorry, interestingly, Sam might have something to add on. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, there's interesting connections between that Lamborghini race and a, and a group called uh, Safer Vancouver, which sort of there's an irony there, I think. Um, that was, uh, that was instrumental in trying to, um, in, in trying to basically take hard right anti-drug user, anti-homeless encampment stances in the lead up to, uh, 
an election out here um, and they, they got uh, properly humiliated in that election and we haven't heard from them since. So, um, so just a, just, just a, a fun, a funny thing to remember this uh, horrific Lamborghini crash that I think actually did really hurt people. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. The, the, the people who are driving some of the Lamborghinis are saying we need safer streets, uh, yeah. you know, so it's, and they're, they're talking about poor people, not traffic, you know, and uh, just to plug a crackdown for a second. Um, in the lead up to the last provincial election, there was this hard turn to the right. A bunch of the candidates from what's called the Liberal Party out here, which is actually a conservative party, were running specifically against drug users, against poor people. And this is in the uh, second or third wave of the pandemic. So things are hitting yeah. hard, um, yeah. you know, and 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 they are like doing that classic right thing of starting with things are tough right now. You know, starting with something that's true and then bait and switching it. And it's it's hard right now because of these poor marginalized people or drug users or whatever. And the cops were on board with that, you know, starting up a unit to go out and in, in the words of the deputy uh, chief to go and uh, go after it's a unit you could call if someone's like sleeping in your doorway or using drugs in the park. That's what he said. So this election comes up and um, you know, they have a right wing candidate that uh, that quotes me being critical of the NDP mm-hmm. and their, and their policies on the drug war saying, uh, you know, I, I said, I don't want to stand around and dig graves with John Horgan. And um, they, this candidate quoted me and, um, you know, I said, Hey, fuck you. You know, like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not down with you guys. I'm talking about a, you know, like a proper end of the drug war, not a conservative backlash against uh, uh, drug users and homeless people. And um, this guy doubled down, wouldn't take my quote out of his political ad. And it, uh, it's, it started this snowball ruling where all of a sudden people started looking at this guy. Uh, who had been mayor before, who'd been a uh, a member of the Legislative Assembly for a long time, they started looking at what he stood for and they didn't like it. They didn't like his backlash stuff. So whereas before he was just speaking quietly to his own constituency, a bunch more people heard his voice and were like, fuck you. He wouldn't change. He doubled down and they they made him lose. You know, they voted him out yeah. of office. So he, like we he said the quiet part loud on purpose that's right. and, it, and, <laughs> and it just fucked him up. Yeah. And all we got to do was be the people standing around with a microphone and help amplify that. But I, I think that's like where, um, you know, if you're a podcast and you're part of a social movement and you're kind of, you're slugging it out in the political arena, then you can have these moments where you punch through. If you, if you see the opportunity, I, this sort of goes to show, right. That like, like so many things, the you know humane sensible uh policy that's sort of considered to be you know beyond the pale by you know whatever you want to call this sort of political establishment the the uh, the consensus of what the what is allowed to happen at this sort of elite level of politics it tends to be very democratically popular or at least the sort of reactionary conservative re- the reactionary conservatism tends to be quite unpopular but it's sort of always it's always portrayed as as unrealistic by the people who have a kind of vested interest in keeping the damn thing going, you know? Yeah. So like reactionary conservatism is unpopular in Canada. I like, I think, I think they're still figuring it out. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's been this long project to figure out what is the Canadian right and far right. That's really publicly and popularly accessible. And they've been working on it um, since uh, the reform party, since Preston Manning in the nineties yeah. and going more and more right. But they're always like fine tuning what is the pace at which people will tolerate being taken to the right. And what is it that we can say out loud and can't say out loud? I feel, I feel so like for- O'Toole got close this time, not not in terms of votes, but just tuning that message by uh, having, 
you know, as we covered oh, yeah. on this show by having like hiring like an Uber lobbyist to do his labor platform and hypnotize some of the stupider people in our media into publishing art like articles about how he was doing socialism. You know, I think I think that's that's a possible direction for mm. these people to go in. But I think you're right, Garth, like the reaction, the super hard reactionary stuff that might play in America, like, say, uh, the people you guys were dealing with in Vancouver who were posting um, creep shots of drug users on the downtown east side, like uh, in kind of invading people's privacy and, and posting this shit on the Internet. That that doesn't play well here. Well, you know what, yeah, though? It did, play, it did play for a bit, though. Like they the, the outsized voice that that group, say for Vancouver, had in the media sort of with no with no really like recognizable visible spokesperson for a long time no no like identified members like really not um really coming out of nowhere with no like track record or history of any kind of success at all i mean they were they were like somewhat setting like the news agenda for a while so i think like um they were beaten ultimately and maybe this is Garth, maybe this is your point, right? It's it's not. I don't think we should fool ourselves into thinking they like naturally can't win here. Mm-hmm. It's just right. that they they haven't quite put it together yet. I mean, they they can win. We, like I think we have to be afraid of them. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And and you always need people who are moving faster than the majority of conservative voters, right? So you like the the right wing ecosystem relies on 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 outliers to sort of break the path, and then eventually everyone to come along behind. But the mainstream Canadian journalism does a really good job of cleaning up their image mm-hmm. for them. Like Maxime Bernier and his party, the People's Party of Canada, was really given like quite calm coverage and didn't really go into like, why is it that every Nazi in Canada loves this party and votes for this party? You know, they didn't really go there. Yeah. In in most uh, regular, all the coverage I saw last night of the election and all the coverage of the campaign – and like you think about the yellow vest movement and the um, what do you call it caravan uh, from Alberta to Ottawa, yep. it was all dressed up as it's just concerns about jobs. Mm-hmm. And you even heard interviews with the people on the current where they're trying to get to their more hard right agenda. And the current, the host or whoever it is, is like, oh well, let's not talk about that. You know, <laughs> they're mm-hmm. trying to clean these people up. They for, didn't. They, so I. I, I Sorry. Oh, I was going to say they didn't even go for the low hanging fruit during the election coverage, which was uh, so popular on uh, certain corners of the Internet, which was just focusing on the sheer absurdity of a lot of the PPC candidates, like recognizing uh, the overt nationalist and and white supremacist and racist uh, elements of it, but also just focusing on what a bunch of fucking freaks these people are and sort of presenting them as they are to the public i think would have a better a better effect than like you were saying garth sanitizing them in a way rounding the edges off and i want to be clear i'm not i'm not saying that like these things can't win but rather that they can win it's just that they need to be made to win it takes a lot of work to get people to like like this it takes work by the political and media class to like clean these things up and make them palatable to but that but that generally speaking right it's you you can if if you can you can get right if you if you can just get around them, you know it's that I think people <laughs> yeah. tend I, I I tend to think that these things tend to be more popular if you can if you can it's, I see it's sort of the same thing with like transphobia in Britain right 
everyone thinks that Britain is this incredibly transphobic country. It's it's not. Transphobia is very unpopular. It's just a very popular elite opinion, and they're doing everything they can to make it uh to make it like the air that you breathe, right? And that you know it that it's and and that you can and it's it's, it's sort of just taking off what you were saying, Garth, right? Like that when when it's just when it's just this unfettered sort of you know cruelty that hasn't had the ground prepared for it sort of as much as it might need you know it it can it cannot be that popular and so it's a winnable battle it's just a battle that must be you know um joined let's say and and fought uh, uh sort of most ferociously well look, I, we've been we've been running long and i think this is probably probably sort of getting into some discussions we can have maybe on some kind of a future part two episode uh, uh for this discussion um so i think just by way by way of wrapping up for now, uh, I want to say, Sam and Garth, thank you so much uh, for coming on to our show and hanging out with us today and sort of exploring the sort of strange corners of the sort of history of this phenomenon. Thanks, man. It's been fun. Yeah. And yeah, uh, don't forget, we have a Patreon. You can subscribe to it. It's seven bucks a month and you get a second episode every week. Uh, it is what some would say a great value. Uh, Fantastic a, deal. A steal at any price. Um, so, with all that being said, don't forget to check out uh, the Crackdown and uh, to uh, uh, you know follow uh, sort of Sam and Garth on social media. We'll be linking their profiles in the description. Anyways, see you everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.